Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This week on the Storybox podcast, the audio quality is so much better. <laughs> Hello, one and all. Thank you so much for returning. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Just wanted to say a big welcome. You've come to the right place um, because we have a lot of special guests that come onto the show and they share amazing, incredible stories. And I'm really, really appreciative of everyone that I've been able to reach out to and they've given up their time um, to come and just be interviewed and, and share their, their knowledge and share their stories. So this week is no exception. I have a good friend of mine, uh, Charlie Biller. He's a film producer. Like I said to you guys last week as a special surprise, I'll be bringing a film producer on. So Charlie goes into his career, how he got started as a film producer, what a film producer does, if you are wondering that. If you do stay to the end of the credits or even at the beginning, you see one of the big names in a movie is part part of that is a film producer. So Charlie goes into uh, that and he goes into a lot of good stories as well, um, some projects he's worked on in the past. So it's a really, really good informative chat that I know you guys are really, really going to get something out of as well. Uh, Merry Christmas again to everyone. Um, wait, this is the first time I said it, isn't it? Well, okay, sorry. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, if you are listening to this on a Tuesday, it will be Christmas time on the Wednesday. So, or whatever day you're listening to it, it is Christmas. It is the Christmas season. <laughs> I, I like I like Christmas. Um, but yeah, honestly, thank you all so much for tuning in. I know you guys are going to love this episode with Charlie Billy. Yeah, thank you for having me. Firstly, and um, so my name is Charlie Billy. As I mentioned, uh, I'm a film and TV and TVC producer. Um, I've been doing it for a few years now, I could say about 10 years approximately. Um, and I love my job. I love my job more than anything in the world, really. And yeah. Why, why do you love being a producer? I mean, it kind of, it's, it's a great question in that I get to kind of tell stories. I get to wake up and kind of speak on what's going on in the world. And I get to kind of create beautiful images all the time. And I get to work with a lot of creative people. It's a creative art really is what it is and not a lot of people are fortunate enough to do that some people have jobs where they just go to an office all day and you know look at a screen I mean there is a lot of that on my job as well excel spreadsheets and budgets and finance and that kind of thing but at the end of the day I'm a storyteller and mm. I get to tell stories for a living so that's the joy that I find yeah and can you also like just tell us what exactly a producer does yeah so <laughs> I get this question quite quite often um all the time actually almost every day <laughs> so in the feature film world, um, I've made a couple of feature films at the moment. So what a feature film producer does. 
I'll, I'll explain it in relation to what a director does. So the director is the person who has the, the creative vision of the film and the execution of the film and what it's going to look like on screen, whether it's um, how the talent perform, whether it's the color palette, um, how it kind of looks um, with the cinematography, the framing, the scenery, the locations. It's just completely execution dependent on the screen for the creative person who is the director. Now the producer, my role, is the person who brings all the tools and all the toys for the director to be able to do that. So I, as a feature film producer, would raise the money for the film, um, with along with other producers, of course. We'd kind of apply for funding grants, we'd go to private investors, we'd look for incentives and tax incentives and that kind of thing. Is that hard to do? It's, very, it's difficult at first, but then kind of once you realize what the system is and how to do those things, it kind of becomes a little bit second nature. You know, I can explain in, you know, in kind of further detail later, but just to give you the gist of what the job is. So you raise the finance initially. Um, you work with the director on the script. You have to, as a producer, you have to know creative. You have to understand how stories are told and how script is done and how um, execution is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And you just have to be across the creative as well as the business, just so that you can be an all, all well-rounded producer in that sense. So you work with the director, you work with the script writers, you apply for the funding, um, you hire the crew with your production manager. Um, you have to obviously find the right crew for the film. You can't just hire anybody and go, you're the cinematographer. You have to look at and research a lot of cinematographers and what their work is and their style so that it can be the it most appropriate story, cinematographer right? yeah. for this particular film. Because everything you're doing as a producer is for the benefit of the film. Because if you're doing it for the benefit of yourself, or for the benefit of the director or for whoever or whatever, then it just that doesn't serve the purpose of making this movie. Because mm. there's, I mean, I'm going to be very honest, there's a lot of egos in this industry and a lot of people are doing it because they want to be on the red carpet and they want to win an award. And it's kind of like you learn at the end of the day that to, to be a producer, you have to, you have to be the person that starts the project and finishes the project. Mm -hmm. So further to that, as a producer, you also have to market the film. You have to sell the film. You have to create the deals after the film is done with the sales agents and the distributors. You have to um, do all of the networking. You're the person who literally sees this film from inception to delivery, hand it on a platter to the cinemas and go, this is the product and how we're going to sell it now. And yeah, it's a kind of a very, very multifaceted role. And at first you kind of, you don't realize when you first start producing movies that you're like, oh my God, I have to do this too. <laughs> and then, at, you know, after your first film, you're like, I cannot believe I just did all of that. Yeah. And I cannot believe this one role has that many responsibilities. And you kind of have to stand back and go, wow, this is crazy. But because it becomes second nature, because you've learned now that this is the system and this is how to apply for funding and this is what you say. And this is the people, the kind of people you want to attract. And this is the target audience. And this is this and this is that. You literally start picking up the, the pieces and go, now I know how to produce movies. Wow. It's very fascinating. And so what, I guess, makes a great producer or what makes a good producer in your opinion? Because comparing yourself to, say, someone of Kathleen Kennedy and that caliber of mm. a producer, what makes them, I guess, different to you? Or, I mean, that's a really great question. Uh, to me, what makes a really great producer is patience <laughs> <laughs> and understanding and just real know-how to be mm. very honest i mean it sounds quite broad but what i mean by that is because you're dealing with a lot of people 
and dealing with a lot of egos and dealing with a lot of funding bodies and dealing with a lot of investors. Because at the end of the day, we speak specifically on investors. They're parting ways with a lot of money. Yeah. And they're kind of entrusting you with that money. And the first question investors always ask you is how much am I going to make back? You know, and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know. You know? <laughs> but you have to have kind of, you have to be very upfront with them. With, yeah. a, with every investor that I sit in front of and I pitch a, a movie to, the first thing I say is you could lose all your money. You look them straight in the eyes and you go, listen, this is a risk. It's a creative investment you're doing. Yeah. I know you've invested in you know, real estate or stocks or whatever portfolio you've got, right? But at the end of the day, this is a very, this is a creative venture you're about to walk into. So you could lose all of your money, right? And they kind of just look at you and go, oh, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. You know, because yeah. the, the first thing is like, when am I going to make my money back and how much? Yeah. And et cetera, et cetera. So you have to kind of just explain to them. You know, basically, this is the this is the research that, and the data that we've collected, um, and it shows that these types of films and these kinds of genres have done really well in these territories, in these countries, in these cities, and blah blah blah. And with this target audience, and you've just you've done all the work, and you can present it to them and go, "This is why I think you'll make your money back," etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's a build of trust between you and whether it's the investor or the crew or the funding bodies or the you know all of these other kind of. Uh, ancillary people and products. So um, going back to kind of rounding back to the question, what makes a really good producer is somebody who is who knows their product and knows how to um, kind of take it out into the world in that sense. And when I say that, I mean, a lot of people think producers sell things like trying to sell the movie, like this is the best movie ever. You're going to make all your money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we're not trying to swindle people out of their money. We're literally trying to create art. Yeah. Right? So, and when you pitch to someone, a lot of people feel that selling is about convincing someone to give you money. Sales and all of that stuff is not about any of that. It's about helping people, yeah. right? So I want it like I, you know, when I sit in front of an investor, I don't sit there and go, "Hey, I think this is a great script. Would you like to invest in it?" I say, "I have something that I think would really help you," you know. And they go, oh, "Okay, how?" And I'll explain to them why and all of that kind of stuff. And I go, "Look, you know, I'm not here to hold your hand. It's your money, but." At the end of the day, I'm not here to like fail in this business. I'm going to create a sustainable business for myself. And this is a beautiful film to do it with. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. And they start kind of building the trust and go, this guy's actually pretty serious about this stuff. So <laughs> yeah. Again, so what makes a good producer? Patience, understanding, and just love for your craft, really. And how would you go about dealing with people that have those egos in a, in a particular project. Oh uh, yeah, no, in my first, yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> all really good questions. <laughs> um, in the first kind of couple of films, it was quite difficult mm. because I wasn't sure how to handle it. Um, and I had a, few, a couple of mentors in my day where they would just go, look, this is, this is part of the industry. This is part of the package. Um, you'll soon kind of learn that all you have to do is speak to them as though you want to help them as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, directors can be very precious about that. It's their, it's their art really. And all artists, you know, when they're creating something and it's very important to them, um, you want to facilitate that. So you can't look at directors as much as they can have an ego about their work, as much as they can be very precious about what they want. It's always what the director wants kind of yep. thing. And sometimes the director will come to you and it's like, it's my film. And it's like, well, it's every, okay. <laughs> yes, it is, but it's our film, you know? Yeah. So you have to kind of understand from their perspective, put yourself in their shoes and go, okay, how can I mitigate this at the moment? 
and just be be offering to them because they're going through a lot of pressure like pressure that i mean as a producer you're going through immense pressure and they they don't understand because they're in they're in the zone in their film you know but you just have to be understanding of that and cater mm-hmm. to them and let them know that they're being supported and that you are willing to do what it takes to kind of make it happen so i'll give you an example so a director um has requested a specific location, let's say, and it's going to cost $3,000 just to hire this one location, right? Like a castle or something. Yeah. And it's, we just don't have the three grand in the budget. Mm. So as a producer, the first thing in my mind, I'm like, no, you're not going to get this location. It's not in the budget. Right. But I'm not going to go to my director and go, it's not going to happen. No, no way. Right. There's a, there's a way of communicating between yeah. partnerships where you, because it's a partnership and it's a year, it's a several years partnership, a producer and a director, when they work together, it's not just for the film for three months or four months or whatever it is. It's literally about five years between, you know, from yeah, writing the script to getting, yeah. to getting the shoot done to cinema release, etc. So you have to literally have a way of communicating with each other. So if he comes to me and says, I want this location and I'm seeing the budget that it's completely like out of whack, it's not going to happen. I'll go, look, okay, maybe we can compromise something else in order to make this happen. Let's move this. Let's potentially cut a character out because that's an act that we can save money on. If we amalgamate those lines, put them in this, do this, there's always a solution. Every problem has a solution. Mm-hmm. So, and they have to be understanding of that too. A lot of directors I find <laughs> don't want to be across the budget because they're, you know, I'm the artist, I'm the director, <laughs> I'm a creative. I, but essentially, you know, any good director, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, they should be across the budget. They, they should know whether they're writing the script or not that, that the budget kind of dictates a lot of the creative sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, and that they should be across that. They should understand, you know, mm-hmm if this needs to be compromised, I have a plan B solution to get the same outcome for the story without having to go all above, over budget, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So. It's a good response. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of pressure and that, you mentioned that the director is under a lot of pressure. Where do you think that pressure actually comes from? Is it the director that puts it on himself or is it mainly from the studio heads or the financiers and everything else? I, where, that's where does a, it come? A, yeah. That's again, a great question. I think it's several places the directors that i've worked with uh, and there are many they seemingly put a lot of pressure on themselves because all directors i find and i don't want to generalize but all of the directors that i've worked with have had this incredible anxiety about their product and when it's release time they're looking at the reviews and it's the end of the world if one person (laughs) says one negative thing they lose their mind and it's like it's it's really not that bad you know it's just i mean because the fallout, though, the consequences of that are quite dire for directors. They're much, they're treated much more harshly than producers. I'll give you, like, in all fairness and all honesty here, to be fair, if a director gets a really bad review, like a really bad review, they won't work for quite a long time. You know, like, it'll be hard to get funding. So, for instance, as a producer, if I make a film and it's a $3 million film and it bombs at the box, it just fails miserably. I can literally go raise more money for another movie tomorrow. <laughs> like I can go make another movie tomorrow and it wouldn't even matter. So you'll be fine. I'll be fine. If a director, cause the director is the vision. It's what people are watching on the screen. Yeah. I'm just the guy who gave him the tools kind of thing. Right. And I raise that money. I can go get some more. Like it's, <laughs> you know, not that I, I speak so confidently. It's very hard. I should put it out there as a disclaimer to everyone listening to this. It's extremely <laughs> difficult to raise money. I make it sound so easy, but I promise you 
Charlie's just very good at it. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much. He walks not. in a room and just <laughs> take money from you. Not at all, but thank you. No, but with a director, if a director gets a bad review, everyone's reading it, everyone's mm. seeing it, and people are posting on Facebook and Twitter and all of social media. So this one director, and as a producer, you're going into the room and pitching a movie, and you know whoever the savvy investor might be would go, all right, who's who's directing it? And I'll go this person. And they'll start reading all the reviews and go, no, I'm not going to give you money to, for this guy. Like, and it becomes this negative cycle kind of thing. And, you know, statistically, it's quite depressing, but statistically in Australia specifically, I can't speak for the US, but um, one in every 10 directors go on to make another movie. So nine out yeah. of the 10 make one feature film and then they just don't ever yeah. again. That, that makes me so sad. You know, so I see where the pressure is built from and because feature films specifically, I'm speaking about films and not TV or um, TVCs here, which I've, which I've also expanded on. I'll get to that later. But with feature films, um, it's, it's so hard because everyone is relying on you for the creative, not just yourself mm. kind of thing. So that's where the pressure builds for, for directors, I think. And you've worked with, I guess, so many different caliber of directors in in your experience what you what have you noticed about a director that makes them a a good director is someone that's resilient someone that's i guess you've got to be passionate about it but also have you met someone that has just been all around the best collaborator hasn't been difficult to deal with um i have so i've met you know i've done two feature films and both directors were um very patient and very kind of giving to the film only because understandably it's the film they're mm. there to for the for the benefit of the film and it's their story it's their craft um and i noticed a great a really great director is one that listens to everyone more than talks to everyone so what i mean by that is you know when you're on set as a director you're getting pushed and pulled by 30 different people all the time. Everyone has questions for you. The first AD, you've got to talk to them, communicate with them. You've got to talk to the actors. Um, you've got the producer behind you telling you about this and the investors are coming on set today. Whatever it is, whatever it is, contracts here, this and that, creative. There's just so many things going on for a director on set at any given time. Mm -hmm. And I find the best directors are the ones who pay attention and just absorb what they need to and take the time to respond accordingly. They don't, you know, the great directors out there, you know, the ones you see it on TV, you saw all those like cliche movies about the director on set yelling at someone and free, yeah. flipping out on set at someone. And like, that's awful, that's toxic and you don't want that. But a lot of the time they're just fed up because mm. so many people around them are doing something but it's not to their liking kind of thing. But again, like coming up in the independent film world, you know, I've never worked with the big Hollywood studios and all of these things, but like watching them flip out, I kind of understand, right? I can't yeah. speak on their behalf, but I've worked with really great directors who just listen and absorb and take it all in and go, okay, mm. how can we fix this? You know, how can we work this out together, etc. Um, and always finding a compromise. Like if something is not working on the day, even if we've planned it, for five weeks straight, we've planned this one scene with, you know, stunts or a fire or whatever. And if it's just not working on the day, there has to be a plan B. And every great director has a plan B. So there are some directors I've worked with like on short form stuff where they didn't have a plan B 
Because they have to, I mean, genuinely, creatively, you really have to kind of come you up gotta, with something. Yeah. Even if you haven't got a plan B, at least be like aware that maybe this might not work. And if it doesn't, let's try let's try this instead. Yeah. Instead of, you know, there is a director that I worked with who, it was a short form thing, it was an online series thing. And he just couldn't handle it, mm. you know, and he kind of canceled the whole shoot and he didn't want to do it anymore. And we just we just kind of didn't understand what was going on in his head, but he he couldn't handle the pressure kind of thing. So I guess handling the pressure is the important thing for a director. Yeah, turning that pressure into something that's great, I find works. And I guess when you're on set as well, you're saying listening. It's like don't be closed off because there's so many other people on set that are there to help you. So listen to if they have an idea, listen to them, and if it might, if it might work, one hundred percent. Of use course, it. and also there for a director, there is also a hierarchy because at the end of the day, you've you've written the script. If you are the the writer slash director, there's different you know there's off different roles. But if you've come up with the creative and you have written the script and you've got the vision and all that kind of stuff, we have all come together to execute this vision, mm. right? So it's not up to someone on set to kind of come up with a new idea. It's your it's your baby, do you yeah. know what I mean? So you have to stand by that too as a director and go, no, this is what I want and stand your ground and, you know, be a leader because essentially as a director, you have to be a leader. You have to be a natural born leader. So there are some suggestions that could come from the producer that would be about the compromise and that's where you work with another person for those things. Whereas if someone else, you know, an actor potentially, if the director and the actor have a great working symbiotic relationship, you guys can come up with something there. But I think um, the director should also stand their ground sometimes and go, no, I see it this way and it has to be because mm-hmm. it's about the story. It's about, the, it's about facilitating what is on screen for the audience. A lot of people don't think about the audience, you know, like, I mean, there's a fine balance for a director um, to execute something that the audience will appreciate, um, not necessarily love, mm-hmm. like maybe some writers slash directors want to do something that's going to shake up the audience and make them really angry and, you know, kind of provocative. Um, if that's the aim, then you're probably doing something right. If I'm watching yeah. this movie and I'm like, I hate this character, that's also a great thing. That's a mission accomplished. But it's always, 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 always for the purpose of the film. Every decision is for what's best for this movie, right? And from the producer's perspective, it's like, okay, if you make a creative decision as a director and I'm working with you and I'm your producer and I say, that's not gonna bode well with the audience, you can come back to me with two different options. You can say, well, it's not about that. It's about this character and what he's doing, Mm -hmm. right? Regardless of what the audience thinks, because that's the character and I want them to feel what he's feeling. Or from my perspective as a producer, I'm like, well, I want to make more money. You know, we want to sell this movie, not get people to hate it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And that's always generally the, the general contention is always, 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 I find the, the death scene at the end. Like if the main character dies, every producer is like, why did we have to kill him? This is a happy story, damn it. We want to like sell this movie and get everyone talking about how happy it is. And then the director will be like, no, it's a drama. It's, you know, it's supposed to be all about the death of the, and you're like, all right. So that's kind of always what starts the quarrel, but you know, creative decision is made in the end and the movie succeeds, whether it's the death or not. (laughs) It depends on, it depends on the film and the script. And I guess having said all that, what made you want to be a producer? 
did you like wake up one morning saying, I'm going to be a producer? <laughs> <laughs> I actually, in the very early days, I actually wanted to be an actor more than ah. anything. And I was all about it. I went to acting school. I got an agent. I was so into it. Right? Wow. And then back in those days, I'm talking like 2004, right? This is <laughs> a long time ago talking. Um, back in those days, we didn't have all of the diversity and inclusivity kind of mandates and all of that stuff, it's especially with social media and all that. We yeah. didn't have any of that. And as a Middle Eastern person trying to be an actor in this country was awful, mm -hmm. awful. Because all you got was like, you know, terrorist roles and like you're playing robber number three. And I'm like, what? Like, what is this? I don't, what, why are people being represented like this kind of thing? So I decided I'm going to start making my own stuff and representing Arabic people. I'm Middle Eastern, I'm Palestinian. Um, and I wanted to kind of represent Arabic people on screen with dignity. Yeah. You know, we're not terrorists. We're great human beings and mm. we're doctors and lawyers and we save lives and we build homes and families and we love each other and we love everyone kind yeah. of thing. And I just wasn't seeing that on screen. And I said, I'm going to do it myself. I'm just going to do it. So I started making short films and, you know, kind of creating my own stuff, learning the process, learning the craft, learning to write and read scripts and do coverage and that kind of stuff. So then in 2012, I'll give you the quick backstory, but yeah. 2012, I was doing odd jobs. I was being a production runner in television. I was running coffees on set. I was literally like a production assistant for so many years, right? Just because I needed to be there and learn. And then 2012, I went, tra uh, I went traveling in 2010, 2011 for a while. And I kind of had this like ding ding moment in my head where I said okay I just I should probably go to film school mm. like to get certified as a producer because now I want to I just want to make stuff myself I don't want to be an, I don't want to be an actor anymore it's not who I am I'm a natural born leader mm -hmm. and I'm kind of I feel I've got the charm and the personality to you do yeah. <laughs> thank you to kind of do this as as a as a job for a living so I went with it and I applied to afters the Australian film radio television school um, and you know, back in those days, you read all these articles like top 10 film school in the world and all the, and I just kind of put in an application thinking I probably won't even get in. This is like kind of a high end school and I got in and I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going back to film school. So I did in 2013, I did the, um, graduate diploma in producing, um, finished there it was a one-year course got certified was very proud of myself was very much in debt had no money right so i applied for the master's degree at afters to continue wow. studying and i thought to myself yeah, more like, in debt <laughs> yeah and i thought to myself like do i need this or not so i got accepted to do afters so as soon as i finished the first year at afters i met a very big producer from fox studios who came in to talk to our class his name is jamie hilton and he gave me an incredible opportunity and he taught me so much. So he came in to do a talk at afters and he basically told us about his work and the films that he's done a ton of films. And he's just, he's a huge producer now in Australia. So he came into our class at afters and he um, did kind of a talk about his work and that kind of stuff. And I basically approached him after class and I said, look, I'm about to graduate this week. And if you need an assistant in your office, I'd love to be that guy. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what do you do on Monday? I was like, are you serious? And he's like, when do you graduate? I go, Friday. And he goes, all right, come in Monday. I was like, all right, cool. Fine, and that was it. So I worked with him for four months. Wow. With zero dollars. It was an unpaid internship. I was paying my way. I had no money. I had no job. I was just doing a full-time internship for no money. Centrelink, baby. And 
I, like, I know what it's like to be poor. Trust me. It's yeah. awful. And I just, but I just did it because I just had to, and I wanted to learn and I was so hungry for it because I was like, now we're playing in the big leagues. I'm certified. I'm working under one of the biggest producers in the country. I've got this incredible opportunity and I'm not going to mess this up. Mm-hmm. So I did four months with him in his office with the entire crew. And he did a couple of films back then at the time that I assisted on. Um, one of them is called Backtrack. And ah, yeah. Adrian Brody and Sam Neill. And I got to be there on set with them and just- Mark would did that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He worked with Jamie. Yeah. That's how I met him. That's right. Um, and we did Martha the Monster together, which I really? recently watched. Yeah. Oh, far out. Yeah. That's I was great. in a scene. I was in one of the suits that your uncle made. Yeah. For real. Like got the film. Yeah. It's great. Oh, that's awesome. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Oh, 100%. Um, so working with them, kind of learning everything. And he basically opened the doors to me and said, you know, if there's anything you need, I want to help you. you know? And he became a mentor to me. And it was such an incredible experience. So after four months on Backtrack, I was working kind of, you know, full time basically on that for no money. I decided I'm not going to do the Masters. Mm. So I teamed up. I actually walked into afters the first day of the Masters and I walked right back out and I quit. I walked into their office and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm leaving. So they were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, I don't. I'm too busy right now because I want to focus on my career. Mm-hmm. So for the following subsequent six years, I literally just put my head down and worked. So I teamed up with um, some friends in Adelaide. They had just taken over the Hendon Studios over there. So we partnered up, started our own company. Um, they refurbished the studio and we used that to make a feature film called Awoken. We worked for five for five years on that film. We were just developing the script, sending it to people, trying to raise the money for five years and we got it done last year. We finally did it last year. So in between times, while I was working on that film for five years, I was literally every job you can imagine, I did it. I worked in reality television during the day. I'd come home, work on the feature at night, every day. I'd work as a production assistant. I'd work as a runner. I'd work making coffees in production. I just did what I needed to do Mm -hmm. to earn money, to pay rent so that I can literally just fulfill this dream of making this movie, right? And then to overlap all of that, um, I worked in TVCs as well. I made kind of TV commercials and kind of started working my way up in TV commercials to earn money while I was doing that. In 2016, this is kind of a long-winded story. In 2016, I got a call from a producer named Michael Wren, who I met at the Cannes Film Festival. I went to the Cannes Film Festival in 2014 to get to know sales agents and distributors. And I, again, more debt. I just paid my own way. I went over there and kind of was the office assistant, really. Unpaid, completely. So I just kind of accrued all of this debt. And I'm like, I need to start earning some cash, right? (laughs) And that's why I started taking those jobs. But then in 2016, I got a call from Michael, who I met at Cannes, who was working at Arclight Films at the time. And he just met me as this kind of young, emerging producer. I didn't, I hadn't made a film or anything at the time. I was just working in production, trying to figure it all out. So in 2016, he calls me and he said, um, I've got a script and I think you might like it. And I was like, mm. like, in my mind, I'm like, what are you doing calling me? I'm a nobody, you know, and you're this big kind of producer. So he said, you know, this director is going to call you and he's going to send you the script and uh, I want you to call me back once you've had a read. And I kind of freaked out because I was like, what do you mean? Like, what is this script? What is this? You know? So I, read, I got home that night. The director called me and he calls me on the phone. I thought he was kind of a complete stranger. I didn't put two and two together. And he's like, my name is Partho. The director's name, he called me and I pick up the phone. He goes, hi, is this Charles? I go, yes. And he goes, this is Partho. And I go, hello. <laughs> and he goes, I've got a script and I want you to produce it. 
And I was like, oh, uh, okay, I don't even, okay. He's like, what's your email? I'll send it to you. So I gave him my email and I said, okay, great. Got home, read it, sat on my couch, read it. And it was literally the greatest thing I've ever read in my life. It was, it's a feature film called Slam. Mm. So I read the script and I cried. I literally sat there on my couch and cried because it was the movie that I've been waiting for. Mm. This is the film. This is the story I've been wanting to make my whole life. I'm getting like emotional now thinking about it. So I called Michael and he's like, let's set up a meeting. So we met in, um, where was it? Summer Hill at a cafe in Summer Hill, Parthona. We talked about, it was supposed to be a one hour meeting. We sat there for four hours talking about the script, the characters, the story arcs, the the kind of prevalence of racism in society, et cetera, mm-hmm. all of the themes in the film. And then by the end of it, he was like, I really want you to produce this movie. And I said, I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to dedicate myself to this film. So then at the end of 2000 and when was it? End of 2016, that was in like April, 2016, December of 2016, I flew again, more debt, (laughs) flew to the Dubai Film Festival to raise money for this movie and just meet with investors and just hang out. I've got family all over the Middle East as well. So I was staying with them and doing all that. Um, And then, yeah, got some money and we cast a Middle Eastern actor in it. did all the press release stuff. The other producers raised more money from Screen Australia and all that stuff. And it somehow just came together mm. within two years. And then December 2017, we started filming. It's called Slam. So December 2017, we filmed it. As of this year, it was at, it played at Sydney Film Festival. And just yesterday, it was released at Dendi Cinemas. Far out. Australia-wide. So it's one of the proudest, most beautiful things that I've ever accomplished in my life. So while I was shooting Slam in December 2017, the other film that I had been working on for five years in the middle of Slam got the green light. So imagine me who's just made my, who's making, literally in the process of making my first feature film as a producer, Mm. got the green light on my second feature film. So we wrapped Slam I had a week over Christmas to spend with my family. And then I left, moved out of my apartment and moved to Adelaide for four months to make Awoken. Awoken is the second film, a supernatural horror film. called. What, what yeah. was going through your head? I needed rest. All I wanted <laughs> was rest because imagine doing all of the work on a feature film. Yeah, and then yeah. literally you've got one week to get your shit together. <laughs> Apologies yeah. for swearing. Uh and then just make a whole other feature film with a whole other set of investors and a whole other set of funding and a whole other set of paperwork. And just, I mean, after those, after those two movies back to back, I was done. <laughs> I literally was like, I'm done. I'm not working for another two months. I'm going to take a break. I went to Mexico. I went to my cousin's bachelor party in Mexico and went to LA and I just took some time off. Mm. I just, I just said, I'm, I've now finished two films. Like, all in the span of like four months. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, roughly six months. But it was an incredible time. Phenomenal. Um, It was the most painstaking, but also the most incredible time of my life. And looking back on that, you know, I learned quite a lot. And as a producer, having that much responsibility, you kind of look up and you're like, I can't believe I accomplished all that. And Mm -hmm. I can't believe I had to know all of that. And I didn't really realize that I didn't know all of the things until I got to the day and 
it was quite humbling because I wasn't experienced as a producer and I just had to make two feature films back to back. Mm. So it hurt. There was a lot of pain because there was a lot that I didn't know, but I learned, yeah. you know, and I learned to work with people and I learned all of the financials and all of the insurances and all of the everything, just everything. Um, but it was phenomenal. And during that process of time, an article was released saying that you're the next up and coming producer. I remember reading that and I'm like, I know him. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I got the emerging producer placement at Screen New South Wales, which was mm. quite, um, I was quite honored by and it was a beautiful thing to receive. Unfortunately, I couldn't take it. I couldn't because I was too busy making my own feature films, which was, it's like, it's a double-edged sword because it was yeah. like a beautiful thing that happened and I'm very thankful, but I couldn't take it because I was too busy. So it's a great problem to have, you know? Um, and I ended up, you know, making both of those features and they're both, so Slam is in cinemas now today and Awoken will be released in the next few months as well. So two cine two films in cinemas at the same time is like a dream. It's a dream. Yeah. It is. So in between time, you know, when I came back from Mexico, I went back to doing kind of short form stuff, um, commercials and TV and narrative and that kind of thing. Um, so feature films, you know, it's always going to be my love and I'm going to do it again. Just right now, I need to focus on, I've got actually, I'm getting married next year. So I'm going to focus on that, getting the wedding out of the way first and then we can uh, discuss the future. <laughs> I'm not going to ask what the process is like in actually planning a wedding. Dude. I can imagine as a producer, you'd be very good at it. <laughs> That's what everyone says. The thing is, I'm planning our wedding. It's in Los Angeles next year. So I'm doing all of the bookings from here in Australia for an LA destination wedding. My goodness. Yeah. And I'm over there. I go to LA twice a year anyway, at least. So <laughs> I've got all the contacts there and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the currency exchange is what's pissing me off at the moment. Cause it's like, <laughs> it's going to cost a lot of money for this wedding, even though it shouldn't just because of the currency exchange. But why did you choose LA? Well, so her family, my partner, Marlene, her family is from Chicago in the Midwest and like Milwaukee and ah, Kentucky right. and all of those yeah. areas. And my family is primarily, there's a lot in California. I have my closest relatives are in California, but we've got people in the Middle East, people in Australia. And we just thought the best kind of middle ground for my family and her family would just all to meet in California. And my cousin, Sam, is getting married the week before us. Ah. Literally, we booked it in the same week just because so many people are traveling. We didn't want to make them travel twice. Mm. So we thought... Let's wow. just go. Let's yeah. just do it in California. It'll get done. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a huge wedding. But it's going to be like 400 people, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I've got the money, I'll try and, uh, <laughs> try and make it. <laughs> yeah. If I've got the money, I'll try and make it. So <laughs> we'll see if I can attend my own wedding. It's going to be great. That's great. Yeah. Um, I guess you've already mentioned who your mentors were. Um, I guess what was some challenges that you faced on Slam, Awoken? Wow, there are so many challenges. Um, well, I mean, without getting kind of too far into it, challenges regarding SLAM. SLAM was very um, inter intertwined culturally for me because I'm Palestinian and it was about, so SLAM, the movie is about uh, an Arab girl, Palestinian girl in Sydney who goes missing after her SLAM poetry performance one night in Bankstown. So her older brother um, is very worried about her. He kind of, Try, spends the movie trying to find out what happened to his sister and where she is. Um, and 
without going into kind of all the political undertones and stuff, he, uh, he's married to an Aussie girl and they live in the city and he hasn't seen his family out west. He used to live out west in you know, the, the area, as they like to call it, the western suburbs. He stays away from that area because yeah. he's kind of grown out of it and he wants to kind of be represented as an Aussie now with all of his friends and family. So he goes back to the area and you know when he finds out his sister's missing, he does what he can. He files a police report, etc. So when the police and the media get involved, just because an Arab girl has gone missing, the police and the media claim that she went to Syria to fight with ISIS. So he doesn't believe it and he can't understand why it's happening. And, you know, he spends the movie trying to figure out if this is true. And then it's, he starts to believe it. It starts to grow in him because of all the things the media is telling him and the police and his family, his wife and all of these things. And then I'm not going to say what happens at the end, but it's just, it's just a harrowing story that, that speaks on the current state of affairs in the world with the media and how they treat Middle Eastern people in, in the news. Mm. Um, and that's what was so pivotal for me. That's what got me wanting to create a beautiful and relevant and poignant and important story to put out into the world because it's true. It's That's the way, you know, it is for a lot of Middle Eastern people out here in the West. But as a producer, it's I feel it's my role to, to tell those stories. I met, I met with a producer in LA, a very, 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 very big producer who was also a mentor to me. I mean, he's worked with Sylvester Stallone and George Clooney. He's done, he's done some very big films. And I sat with him. <laughs> I went to his house in my auntie's minivan, right? And he, he's got this Beverly Hills mansion with like cars all outside and his tennis court and all the, and I'm just in my auntie's minivan and I'm like, Oh God, this is very embarrassing. I went to his, to his house and I, you know, and I said, you know, I want you to mentor me. I want to understand about the process of producing and making films. And he said to me, he's like, I regret every single one of my movies. I didn't love a single one of my films. And I said, what do you mean? Why? And he's like, because they didn't say anything. They were just junk. They're all just hamburgers. I didn't make a single steak. I just made shitty hamburgers. Mm. And I, and he looked at me square in the face and he's like, make movies that you love only. Don't, don't do what I did. And oh, I'm looking around at his yeah. mansion. I'm like, come on, bro. <laughs> like you didn't really mess up in life. Like, to be honest. And he's like, I don't care about all this. He's like, this is all just, it's easy. He said, it's easy for me to say that because I have it all, but I don't care about it. Mm. I wish he's like, I really get depressed about it. I wish I made movies that I really loved and that said something about the world because I sold out. I have all of this, but it doesn't mean anything. And I just, I got really sad about that because Slam was that movie for me. Slam was a movie that I, I loved with all of my heart because it said so much and it said everything that I wanted to say, mm. you know, and I spent years with that mandate in my mind and I got to, I got to do it. And the second film, Awoken, Awoken was more of a commercial property. I made Awoken, it's a supernatural horror, you know, and statistically, supernatural horrors are the most commercially viable film product in the world. You walk into any cinema, there's a horror film playing. No matter wh which cinema in the world at any time, there's a horror film playing. So I said, okay, well, if I want to create a sustainable business, I have to do something. I want to, you know, I can't just make these independent dramas that aren't going to make much money because statistically showing they don't. Mm. So I thought I will make a commercial product and uh, we did. So hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll see if it performs at the box office and uh, get some cash, you know. <laughs> And pay for this wedding. So, yeah. Is um, Slam doing well at the moment? Has it it's getting well? incredible reviews. Actually, mm. I posted it this morning from Variety. 
Variety in the US posted a beautiful review calling the film outstanding and relevant and thrilling. And I was so happy. I'm so happy that that it's getting such great um, attention. That's great. Yeah. And do you find that when you read reviews and everything like that, it affects your mood or anything? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, you wake up happy because you spent all this time doing something. You want, it's not about recognition, but you want to kind of know that people go, hey, this is, this is a nice thing you've done. Even it's not supposed to be a validating thing, but when you sit in a cinema and I can tell you directors, directors are the most anxious when it comes to this. Oh, yeah. When you're doing a screening or if there's just, you're sitting in the audience for the, for the viewing of the film, the directors aren't watching the movie at all. They're literally just listening. Oh, what is the audience? Yeah. How are they taking this movie? Like, what am I supposed to take from this? Are they loving it? Are they hating it? Oh my God, my life is over. Kind yep. of. And it's like, if they don't laugh at the appropriate moments, the directors flip out. Yep. And it's not, it's not to say it's not to say that the audience doesn't love that moment or whatever they do, but it's how they feel about the overall film. And I think directors focus too much on every second of the film. It's like the directors, the, the audience should be feeling this way. Why aren't they feeling this way? <laughs> but it's how it translates, essentially. So Yeah, I kind of get stuck in that as well. Um, it's it's hard. Like as as a director and as a filmmaker when you make something i, I kind of understand it as well and then i have all my friends telling me just relax jared yeah it's okay enjoy the experience of having people watch your movie yeah so no that's great um i guess you've talked about things that you're passionate about challenges as producer any memorable stories that are going to stick in your mind for the rest of your life oh so many wow um i, I like one of the stories generally that I like to tell is when I first started as a runner mm. in production, I didn't know anything, you know. And one of the first ADs, the first AD that I was working with on the day, I don't remember his name, but he told me to grab something. And I was so, you know, when you're eager, when you're so young and just eager to like impress people, yep. but you're nervous and you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to mess this up. So I went to the to the unit. There was like a unit area with like all the table, um, coffee and tea table and all that kind of stuff. And it was just one of those little flimsy tables. And I just went to grab the kettle. And I literally, like, I was in such a rush. I turned around and I, like, walked off and I kicked the the, the um, leg of the table underneath it. And all the tea and the coffee and everything just literally went all over the ground, right? I was that guy. And this is, like, my first job as a runner. And I just, I couldn't believe that happened to me. Like, this is something you see in movies. Like, mm. the cliche young runner who's eager to, like, show everyone how good he is. And I literally messed the whole thing up. And the first day he just looked at me and he's like, are you serious right now? I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh my God. And like that stuck with me, you know, because it showed me, it kind of made me realize in my older years that it's okay to mess up because that's how you learn. My, my dad told me a story once when I was a young kid um, of a, a lighting guy who worked on a set in production and on a, on a stage. And he was rigging one of the lights and it fell and it broke into a thousand pieces, right? And the executive, Mr. Executive walked up to him and the lighting guy was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. If you want to fire me, it's okay. I totally understand. I won't come to work. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is the worst thing because it costs like $10,000. And the executive looked at him and said, I'm not going to fire you. I'm going to give you an extension. You're, I want you to work with me for another five years. And the lighting guy was like, what do you mean? Why? And he's like, well, you've done that now and you're not going to do it again. Uh, I like that. You know? Yeah. And you learn from your mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes and it's okay because you learn from those things. And I've known since then, literally since that day, just calm down. 
It's going to be fine. Mm. You don't have to freak out. And I never did again, mm. ever. You know what I mean? So I, I took that lesson and I moved on with it. And it, it applied itself to so many things as a producer where, you know, like I'd be doing, when I first kind of started making long, longer form stuff and, you know, I never learned to edit. I was never an editor. And a lot of producers somehow know how to edit. And I'm like, that's not another thing I want to learn. You know, there's just so many things I have to learn as a producer. But when it comes to putting together quotes, like if I'm going to a post house for a quote on a certain kind of edit, uh, a grade online, all of these things, I have to know how much these things cost. And I have to know the process of what happened. Even if I don't do it myself, I just, I, I've sat with editors and gone, okay, can you teach me this just so that I know? I don't have to do it. I don't have to do yeah. the, pick up the tools, but just to know what the process is. So when I start kind of requesting quotes from editor, editing houses, post houses, et cetera, grades, I know what it entails. And a lot of the, for the first few, there were times they were sending me quotes for like 10 grand or something. And I'm like, oh yeah, great. Okay, I'll put 10 grand in the budget. I just didn't know. But yeah. now, when, once you learn, you start, okay, I don't have to be nervous about it. They're not the boss. I'm the, it's my movie. You mm -hmm. know, you can't tell me how much this costs. I'm going to tell you what's in the budget. We're going to work it out, you know? <laughs> so you kind of slowly, you know, without the anxiety and the, and the pretending to know, there's a lot of pretending mm. also. You, I have to be honest about that. There's a lot of like kind of fake it till you make it, which I don't strictly believe in, but I, it has worked on a few instances. But again, you have to have the personality for it because there's another, I'm full of sayings. But there's another <laughs> saying where if you're good at something, you tell people. Yeah. If you're great at something, they'll tell you. So growing up kind of in the industry, I got told often that I have the personality for it and I'd be great at this. So I said, okay, you know, it was something I'm very passionate about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And after hearing that, you go, okay, I think this is this is my calling. This is what I this is what I'm doing with my life. And mm -hmm. I have grown to absolutely love it. So yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. I guess uh, finishing up few more questions for you. Um, one of them is, is quite a big one actually in terms of the state of affairs with the Australian film market. What's your opinion about that? Because <laughs> it's so funny because this is a tough question. Um, the Australian film industry has ebbed and flow over the, flowed over the years. Um, it's quite successful. People don't realize that, especially with feature films that there's a lot of films that come in and out of studios and stuff here. Um, but more focused on the sales of the side of things is the issue. Mm. Um, getting a film made, we have, we're very lucky. We, we have a lot of incentives here. We have an incredible funding body like Screen Australia and all the re relative respective states that provide funding also. Um, so it's quite possible, you know, it's, I don't want to say easy, it's really not easy. It's extremely difficult, but it's possible. And a lot of other countries just don't have the, the facilities and the resources that we have. But on the sales side of things, I have my own personal kind of opinions about Australian film um, genres in general. So there's a lot of kitchen, the word kitchen sink drama yep. kills me. Right? It, like, it pains me to even say, because a lot of filmmakers focus on this identity that Australia has about the outback and all of these things where 90% of Australians don't live on the outback. We don't have to export this image of ourselves constantly. You know, we're mostly urban dwellers. We have nice cars and beautiful homes and, mm. you know. But I think Australians generally don't watch Australian films, and this is my opinion, is because 
we kind of cringe at our own identity. We don't like ourselves as, as, as a community. And that's to say because of the history of this country, like the way we've treated Indigenous people and refugees, we can't look at ourselves. And that's what I think there's a little bit of self-hate in the culture. We cringe at ourselves. Like you look at New Zealand, a, a, a local film comes out in cinemas, whether it's to do with the Maori culture or not, they're flocking. They love their own cinema. They love it. Why doesn't Australia have that? Because we don't like our identity mm. as people because we have this inner guilt about what this country has done to the indigenous and the refugee population. And it's, that's, look, again, it's a personal opinion, but there's a reason why I'd rather go to the cinema as an event. I'd rather go to the cinema to watch something that is amazing and outlandish and funny and epic and mm. grandiose, like the Hollywood stuff and, you know, you're watching these big American movies, not just necessarily all the Marvel stuff, you know, the recent comments from Martin Scorsese about, you know, it's not cinema. Or, like I understand all that, but a lot of people go to the cinema to experience something that is not in their day-to-day -day lives. And a lot of Australian films are just people in their day-to-day -day lives. Mm. And a lot of people just don't seemingly want to watch that unless the story is quite epic or whatever. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't incredible Australian films out there. Like there, there are so many classic, beautiful Australian films. My personal, I've got like favorites. Chopper to me is one of the greatest Australian films only because it, it says so much and performance wise and it's so different. It's like, it shows you a side of this one person's life in a way that's so creative and like endearing almost like, like one of my favorite films of all time, if not my, probably my favorite film of all time is Raging Bull, Robert De Niro, directed uh -huh. by Martin Scorsese, 1980. To me, that is an absolute masterpiece of cinema. You can't fault that movie because I've, I've actually studied it so much. I've taught classes on that film alone. Wow. Right? And I, there are so many messages from Martin Scorsese to the filmmaking community in that film. Mm -hmm. He communicates, Martin Scorsese is a directing God to me. He communicates with filmmakers in such a phenomenal film language that an educated filmmaker would watch his films and go, oh my God, I can't believe he just said that to me. He's trying to tell me something. Like I'll give you an example. If you watch, have you watched Raging Bull? I have, yes. I'll tell you why it's a phenomenal piece of cinema. Every scene that the wife is in or is referred to, there is water in the frame. There is literally like, whether it's, like she's standing by the pool, there's water behind it. Whether if it's the brother and uh, Joey and his brother talking to each other, it's raining outside and you watch water and there's always water in reference to the wife. Always, throughout the whole film. But that's Scorsese's way of saying that she's so fluid. She's like in and out of his life all the time. That's a language of cinema. You mm. don't just watch a movie and go, it's raining outside. Why is it raining? <laughs> like. There's got to be a reason. This is what I mean about the creative side of things. As a producer, you have to know all of this stuff because it's the language of cinema is incredibly prolific and profound. And you, when you speak to other filmmakers who understand that, oh, it brings such joy. Look at me. I'm so happy like just talking about it. It brings me such joy to know that this language exists and that we as filmmakers can communicate this to each other. And the general audience probably won't pick up on this stuff. No. But us as artists, we create these things in order to go... This is what I've created. You get it too, you know? That's what I, I directors like Finch, Fincher, I love. Fincher is amazing. He's yeah. incredible. Another visual language expert. Oh my God. Like 
Incredible. Just the way Seven. he can portray, not just the story to the audience, yeah. but the way he speaks to me as a filmmaker. I just, I bow, I bow and I'm like, you're just a phenomenon. You know what I mean? Um, name some directors that you like. I want to know. <laughs> I love, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Spielberg, Fincher, Scorsese once again. Um, I think one of my favorite Scorsese films was Shutter Island. Mm. Like that for me was mind incredible, mind bending, incredible. I've watched it so many times. Yeah, I still don't couldn't tell you the ending. I still it's, couldn't tell you like like when you <laughs> watch this film, it's like you're going back to the basic again. Like you have no idea what's exactly. going to happen. Exactly. I appreciate that. And, and more on like Scorsese's comments about Marvel and that, I can't understand what he what he was trying to say. Because yeah. when you go into a Marvel movie, you're not actually asking the question why they're doing that. There's no real questions happening in your mind. You're just yeah. going there for pure mind-numbing entertainment. It's like, oh, it's cool. Superheroes in a, a suit and the visual effects and all that. That's great, like 100%. But where's the essence of the story behind it? It's, it's the story. Just, it's the same thing. It's like um, you go on, on a Friday. It all looks the same. Like you go watch a, a Captain America movie, then it's like, the next week you've got a, an Avengers movie and it looks the same, it feels the same and it's just like you just got more characters in it. That's it. To, yeah, so, to me, I mean, I don't watch those. I, I have seen some of them. I don't watch all of them and I'm not like this big Marvel, you know, Marvel Universe fan or whatever. Mm. A lot of my friends are, so I'll entertain and I'll watch and whatever. But I'm kind of more into the the, the epic sagas, you know, mm. like The Godfather to me is probably, if Amazing. not the greatest piece of cinema also. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Godfather 1 and 2. I mean, look, maybe not 3. 3 was a <laughs> massive disappointment. 1 was the best. 2 was okay. I mean, no, still two, great. Was, 2 was also... 1 and 2 to me is one film. Mm. 1 and 2 is one film. You can't separate them because they are together as the saga mm. kind of thing. 3, it wrapped it up. I understand, but <laughs> probably not the way it should have been done. I don't no. know, like 20 years later. But anyway, so The Godfather, you know, movies like that is what drives me to kind of i want to create movies like that and slam to me it's nowhere near on that level obviously it's only like a three million dollar film but it's it told such a beautiful story in such a beautiful way that i kind of you know put it up there but mm. um on directors as well i'm kind of going through a huge denis villeneuve oh yeah phase yeah. at the moment denis, and prisoners he, he started for me on a movie called Anson D. Have you heard of that film? No. It's a French Canadian film. Can Canadian film, Canadian funded, but um, it's kind of loosely based around a brother and sister who go to try to find their dad. They receive a letter from their mum to find their father. And it is, that got me into him entirely. When I watched that movie, it's in my top five of all time. Wow. And it's one of his older projects. And it's, you know, independent, low, low budget, but unbelievable filmmaking and the story for the first hour of that film you're watching it going what is this i'm so bored what is actually happening here i don't even what's going on and then one scene happens and i swear to you i i my heart stopped i was completely breathless i was completely speechless i just i was like <gasps> and i sat there and stared and i couldn't believe someone wrote this script like someone had to, like you can't write this someone had to live a crazy life to to write this so i want you i want you to watch anson d okay it's spelled i n c e n d i e i'll add it to my ever-growing list the yeah more, the more literally. people i talk to and i ask them what's your favorite movie they'll mention something i haven't even heard of and yeah. i'm like okay i gotta watch that yeah because i gotta figure out why they love it as well 
because yeah like Denis Villeneuve is probably in my top five he's amazing directors yeah. like when I saw Prisoners I was just like that is that's one hell of a story yeah. like ab- <laughs> absolutely um, mystery mind bending he's uh, yeah he's, he's become the new kind of superstar director at the moment I think I'm curious to see what he's going to do with June because yeah that's like, going to be I mean that's been in the works what like 30 years everyone's been trying, trying to make it, it. <laughs> and it's like it's one of those my dad always says it's one of those movies that you can't turn it's one of those stories you can't turn into a movie well but that's that's what that's, everyone's been saying about yeah. it but yeah we'll see if the knee can't do it then but no, no one, one can, can. <laughs> so no yeah, but yeah. that I guess you've already answered my one of my last questions is what your favorite movie is. Yeah. But I'm curious to know what your favorite actor is. Robert De Niro. Yeah. By far. Robert De Niro. I don't even have to think about it. I got to meet him in 2007. What was it like? It was the funniest thing because I met him, DiCaprio, and Pacino. Whoa. In the same year. And it was like I was working as a bartender. I didn't meet them under film circumstances. I was bartending at a restaurant and they all came in at separate times at this one restaurant. And meeting him. <laughs> my old workmates will tell you I was completely shocked I cried I was you know like after the I didn't cry in front of him but I got to talk to him and I got to like hang out and kind of you know just meeting him he's so funny he's so short he's actually much shorter in real life people think he's like tall he's not mm. he's very short and he's very shy he doesn't kind of have the big personality that people see on screen um, but compared to Pacino, when I met Pacino, he was the loudest man in the room and he was the funny, he was incredible. I ended up going to dinner with his crew, um, at the star casino years ago when he, he was making a coffee documentary, but it never got released, but he had a screening in Sydney and I met him at the restaurant and I went to see his talk. He presented this whole kind of in conversation with Al Pacino at the star and he gave me backstage tickets and I hung out with him. We took photos and we went to dinner and he's me and my friend. And we're like at the dinner table with Al Pacino just going, I can't believe I'm sitting here. <laughs> my goodness. It was incredible. Um, so yeah. Across like, the table from Scarface. <laughs> literally. Um, but yeah, having to kind of like had those experiences and stuff, you look back and, you know, watching their performances on screen. There's a lot of miseducation, which is quite sad because back in the day, you know, I loved Scarface and I mm. loved all of the other kind of, Serpico and all the kind of stuff that he was doing but in modern times given that it's my mandate to for inclusivity and diversity and all that kind of stuff the fact that they cast this young Italian actor to play a Puerto Rican and play a Cuban and it kind of it got it got to me you know because we didn't know anything about it back then and when I wanted to be an actor as a Middle Eastern person I didn't think of color mm. and I thought I could play anything like Al Pacino did but we just weren't cast in those roles. And that's why I wanted to make the change. So I think we've reached a point in, you know, society where I'm very proud of how far we've come with diversity and that people are really talking about including, you know, not so much on the tokenism side of things. Like you have to have one black person and one Arab person and one Indian person and one gay person and one Asian person. It's not about that. It's just about being a little bit more facilitative to, who is best for this role mm. and it doesn't always have to be the blonde blue-eyed white boy who is the hero in every story because we've we've seen that for too long so yeah to go back robert de niro robert de niro was my <laughs> i always giving you these long winded answers that's good no i like it yeah <laughs> better than super short and then you try yeah. to figure out okay what's next <laughs> yeah, yeah so Thank the you. last movie that you saw Ooh, the last movie that I saw, I watched, I've been trying to watch more movies lately because 
for the last few years, I've just, I haven't had time to do anything, as you can understand. Like, it's just been nonstop. Mm -hmm. um, the last movie I saw actually was about two weeks ago, and I watched it at home, Apocalypto. I love that movie. Man. Such a good movie. That is, that is the, one of the most epic films. Mm. I Completely still, like, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. I still, I was watching it. And it kind of, as a producer, it ruins cinema for you because you know too much. You're like, <laughs> yeah, you're no. like, I know how they did that. But I watched that movie and it was mind-numbing how mm. they did all of that. And this, just the sheer storytelling ability of that film. And the, like, without getting too far into it, the violence and the just, it was horrendous. It was horrific. Oh, yeah. yeah. But phenomenal. That's phenomenal cinema to me. That's filmmaking to me. Don't I advise people if you do watch Apocalypto, don't eat anything when you're watching it. <laughs> Otherwise, you you feel yeah. you feel so sick with some of the scenes that goes yeah. on, and you think, how can people be that senseless? Unreal. To, it's just unreal. Uh, you got to watch it. I yeah, can't really and it makes it. me really appreciate Mel Gibson oh, yeah. on a whole other level. Like I, obviously with passion and those, but in his acting days, he had some incredible hits. And he was, you know, the, the charming, good-looking guy. And I understand all that. He's a great performer as well. But on a directing sense, I think he's gone so... He's taken it to another level and he's a phenomenal director as well. Mm -hmm. I have to give credit where it's due. He's great. And I got to work with him on... Um, on What was the film he did in Australia? Oh, my God. I was his personal assistant on... Was it the war film? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now I'm going blank. Yeah, me too. I'm like, what was it called? So... I guess finishing up three bits of advice that you could give someone that's starting out or just needs a little bit of a boost. Three pieces of advice, not just one. Okay. Just one. <laughs> three pieces of advice I can give you. Okay. So Al Pacino said this to me. He said, just keep going. No matter through all of the heartache and the being poor and listen to me, I know how bad it is to be poor. I've been very poor, but I just kept going because there's always light at the end of the tunnel. And thankfully after making these films, I've got you know, some savings now in the bank and I work prolifically as a producer and I'm in a very good place. I've worked with a great company that we do TVCs together and, you know, online content branded stuff together. I do a lot of TV stuff online. Um, um, what's it called? Series, TV series and that kind of stuff. And I'm, a, I'm in a very fortunate place because I just worked and I loved what I did. And I, that segues into the second piece of advice. You just really have to love what you do mm. because if you don't love it, you're going to be kind of miserable. Um, it's what wakes me up in the morning, you know? Like I've got a beautiful partner who supports me and I, I love her more than anything. And having someone like her by my side to support me through it all just to kind of, you know, when I'm going through all the pain-saking issues and, you know, and it's not to say that there isn't anxiety. Every producer goes through these things and a lot of imposter syndrome where you're like, am I... Am I good at this? Am I just faking it? Am I just like, do people think I'm good, but I'm actually not? Mm -hmm. And you'll go through a lot of that. So yeah, you have to, re you have to be, you have to really love it. And I guess the third piece of advice is just <laughs> to be very frank, ignore a lot of people because I got told by so many people that's impossible. And in Australia, we have a huge tall poppy syndrome issue where you're like, hey, I want to be a film producer. I want to do this. And they're like, oh, you mean like, what do you mean? Like movies, like full time. Mm -hmm. you're like, yeah. And you're like, I, even if you got a film made, I got slammed on for $3 million. And I tell people, hey, man, I just finished my first film. And then Australians would look at you and go, oh, what do you mean? Like a short film? <laughs> no, like it's a feature. Oh, you mean like on, like on, like online or something? Yeah. No, in cinemas, man. Like it's a, 
what? And they just, they don't know how to kind of comprehend that you're trying to work for something. And you, in Australia, calling someone a tryhard is an insult. <clears throat> like if you really try hard at something, people look at you, oh, it's bloody tryhard. Like, can you not? Yeah. But the difference is, I mean, look, culturally, I don't, America is not, not at all perfect or Hollywood is just, just as bad. But there are much more supportive people. Americans generally tend to kind of have this bravado where they want to help and support even the big Hollywood execs. You think that they don't have time for you or whatever. You just go, listen, I want to sit down with you. And they'll go, come into my office. Let's have a chat. Here in Australia, it's like, look, I don't want to complain. There are a lot of great people here that I've worked with, obviously. And I want to be that person who I needed when I was young. But the kind of the difference is in America, they'll, they'll talk to you and they'll listen. And, you know, even if it's bullshit, even if they don't want to work with you, they'll just, they'll open their door. Mm. But here it's like, oh, yeah, no, I don't have time at the moment. I'll just get back to you. Let's try in a month. And they're like... All right, but you know, you just got to keep going and ignore when somebody says, "Oh, it's impossible to get into the filmmaking industry." Well, it's mm. not because I just did it, mm. and I'm gonna keep doing it. In my family, not a single person in the history of my family, both sides, has ever worked in the film industry. So I just said, "Screw all that! I'm gonna do it." And you know, going through all the debt and all the pain and all the dramas of trying to figure out how to do it, and just the learning curves and the internships and the struggles and the whatever. There's always happiness on the other side of the despair, mm. and you'll always get there. That's so good. don't don't ever if you love it, don't ever give up because I promise you, I promise you, you'll get there. Mm. And there's no sorry, I'm just gonna keep rambling for a second. There's no such thing as like somebody who's gonna give you that opportunity and you're gonna quote unquote make it. There's no such thing as quote unquote making it. It's just up to you. Um, you're you're the cavalcade. Mm. so there it is that's good and what's next for you next for me um i'm getting married next year as i mentioned before so with this big wedding that's going to be my kind of next project <laughs> in a weird way so after the wedding you know like we're going to live in australia um for a couple of years she's american obviously as i mentioned so we're going to move to la at some point probably within the next few years um who knows have kids do all that stuff but in the meantime you know once we get the wedding out of the way um, I'm getting scripts constantly sent to me. So if there's one that I really love and I'm really passionate about um, that I can continually work on. And again, films, you know, they take a few years to get up. And when I say get up, mm -hmm. I mean raise the finance and get everything kind of sorted. And um, because it takes a few years, when I find a script that I really, really love and will attach myself to, then I can do that. But in the meantime, I'm happy doing the short form stuff, you know, producing commercials and producing TV. It's very fun. It's fulfilling. Um, the money is obviously great. So I'm in a very good position to kind of, you know, choose my next step, but we'll wait till after the wedding. We'll see how we go. That's great. Really appreciate you taking the time coming on and sharing your stories and experience, giving us more insight. I learned some things as well. And hopefully you guys have learned something as well. So thank you, Charlie, once again. No worries. Thanks for having me and good luck, everyone. So thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on to Storybox podcast and sharing your stories and your knowledge with us. I got something out of it. So what did you guys think? You can uh, let me know by sending me an email or just DMing my the Instagram account, the Storybox podcast Instagram account. And if you do get something out of it, then please share it out. Share it to as many people as you possibly can. I know Charlie has a lot of good information. And how about those 
those quotes and those stories, like my goodness, they, they challenged me, right? And um, I still use, I use, I actually stole them, Charlie. Thank you so much for that. I just stole some of those uh, stories and quotes that you use and I tell them to other people. So fantastic. <laughs> this, is what, this is one of the reasons why I do the story box. But anyway, like I said at the beginning, um, I just wanted you guys to get to the end. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but if you are in around the world and you are listening to this, it is Christmas time coming up very, very soon. So Merry Christmas, one and all. Thank you so much for everyone that has supported the Storybox so far. Um, the new year is just around the corner. So enjoy the Christmas time. Enjoy the new year time. And we'll be back in the new year as well. So thanks, one. Thank you again. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 